Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. We've got a lot of big news to cover this week, like a victim of another Minneapolis area police shooting mourned. My son had a smile that was worth a million dollars. He was loved by so many. He's going to be so missed. As the spotlight in Chicago continues to shine on the Adam Toledo shooting. Lawyers from several Latinx organizations are calling for the Department of Justice to investigate the police shooting that killed 13-year-old Adam Toledo. Which comes on the heels of an historic verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Guilty. 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 we made history! Here to help us make sense of it all is Washington Post reporter Kim Belware. Kim, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us is Christian Farr. He's reporter for NBC5 Chicago. Welcome to Reset, Christian. Well, thank you so much. Glad to be here. All right, let's start with a topic that you've both been covering, and that's police accountability. Kim, I'll go to you first, because you covered the uh, Derek Chauvin verdict for the Washington Post. Uh, So can you tell us how the Minneapolis community is dealing with the aftermath of that verdict? I think it is very similar to the way Chicago felt after the verdict for Jason Van Dyke, the former CPD officer who killed Laquan McDonald. There was so much anxiety. There was uh, just this heightened feeling around the city of, you know, wondering what the verdict was going to be, wondering how people were going to react. Obviously, um, you know, the buildings that had been damaged or boarded up since last year, you know, continued that way. Downtown Minneapolis is still very heavily fortified. And when the verdict came out, I was in George Floyd Square outside the Cup Foods where he was killed last May. And when the verdict was read, it it was the same feeling outside of 26 in California for the Van Dyke verdict. It was like this exhale and this kind of breaking of tension. And there was a mix of whether it was grief, of whether it was celebration, of whether it was just relief. But it's a complex emotion. But the city has been calm since the verdict has come out. And Christian, what about President Biden's phone call that he made to the Floyd family before the verdict? How was that seen by the activists and the people who weren't on the street protesting? There's a lot of people who called this a celebration. I I was in a barbershop in Evanston with a, a pastor who was also a community activist who just stood to his feet and said that this is a monumental moment, but the fight is not over. So Biden's words, Uh, put a stamp on that. But now we've got to wait to see what sentencing looks like, which is going to be vastly different than uh, Jason Van Dyke. We're looking at a lot more time uh, in prison, which may lead to more change, which I think is what a lot of people are looking for, especially black people in this country. They're looking for accountability because this family, George Floyd's family, is not going to get justice. You know, justice would be George Floyd back, talking to them, embracing them, hugging them, going to birthday parties, being with his children, But we don't have that. Um, And so we can hope that we don't have another instance like that again. Kim, talk a little bit more about what this DOG investigation could mean for for the Minneapolis PD and, and whether the DOJ could force certain reforms to be put in place. 
you know, since we're going through that right now in Chicago, there's, you know, there's a lot of similarities. They're going to look for evidence of more systemic civil rights violations. You know, how is the training looking? How is it that you can have an officer with the level of experience that Chauvin had apparently breaking all of this training and, and not following the guidelines? You know, there was all of the testimony from even his own chief and other people on the force who said, this is not how we're trained. And the Justice Department is going to need to look at top down from, you know, the training in the academy to the ongoing um, field training of the officers to just, you know, kind of how this is enforced, you know, how these systems are living and actually being applied to policing in Minneapolis. Right now, it seems like it resembles a lot of the, you know, pattern and practice that the Chicago Police Department is under. And as far as whether it's going to be effective, those in the activist community in Minneapolis are very skeptical because they have seen how um, investigations, even if they lead to consent decrees, don't always yield changes. Uh, you know, for the folks who want the most drastic changes, they don't want an, a DOJ investigation alone. They want a wholesale reimagining of how policing is done. Christian, Latino activists and leaders here in Chicago, they're also hoping that the DOJ is going to look into the police killing of Adam Toledo. You're covering that story as well. So what's the latest there? Well, we saw the release of that video. I remember getting the email from COPA and uh, watching that video unedited in its entirety. And um, I remember days prior to that, a community activist calling me and saying, that he had sort of been given a rundown of what that video was going to entail. And he said there are going to be people who believe that it's a justified shooting. There's going to be people that are going to believe that it's an unjustified shooting. And that's exactly what's playing out here. Uh, when you look at that, there are people, I was at a protest the other day, who said this was an unjustified shooting. His hands were up. Um, you know, and this is going to be, a, this is a difficult one. You know, Laquan McDonald, uh, when you look at that video, it definitely did not match the narrative whatsoever. This one's difficult to look at. You know, it's being looked at through different lenses right now. What is it going to lead to? There is an eruption right now in the Latinx community. They are siding with the black community as well. There were a lot of uh, black activists, black mothers who have lost their family members as well to police-involved shootings or involvement with traffic stops or some sort of engagement like that. Where this goes from here, I'm not 100% certain. But we definitely do need some sort of change when it comes to police, and especially here um, um, in Chicago. And, um, you know, hopefully that'll bear out with this consent decree. Hopefully it bears out with other things that are happening in other parts of the country as well. Christian, we've, we've also been hearing protesters here call for broad reforms to the police department. Uh, more than 100 people rallied outside the Thompson Center on Wednesday. So what kind of changes are local police protesters hoping to see? The biggest one that, you know, I've heard, and this is not one that's any new, it's not new, is defund the police. You know, it's, it's pretty much like they did in Newark, New Jersey. Revamp the entire system, fire everybody, and create a brand new system. I think there are some people who just don't agree with that. They just don't think that's the way to go. We know the President Biden uh, and the Vice President don't uh, agree with that. Retraining, is that actually going to uh, change anything? You know, what about the makeup of the police department? As well, does it truly match uh, the communities, the west, the south sides of Chicago, the north sides of Chicago? Does it match that? Kim, you've also been covering the case of another Minneapolis man that was killed at the hands of police, and that's Dante Wright. Now, in covering his funeral yesterday, you started your article by saying that while most funerals look to the past, Wright's funeral points to the future. What did you mean by that, and what did you see? It was an event 
it was a funeral, but it had a lot of the trappings of, you know, like a civil rights rally almost. Very notable that there were so many families represented, you know, who found themselves in the same situation that now Dante Wright's family is in. It's what uh, the family's attorney, Ben Crump, has called a fraternity none of them would choose. Several members of George Floyd's family were in attendance. The mother of Philando Castile, who was a black man killed in a suburban Minneapolis traffic stop in 2016. She was there. The boyfriend of Breonna Taylor was there. And even relatives of Emmett Till were in attendance. And it was this, you know, this really powerful show to say, you know, there is this link that is, you know, running through this country of, you know, police violence, of brutality um, against Black people. Even the the trumpet player who performed, whose son was in the viral video last December of um, a, a white woman calling the police, accusing him of stealing a cell phone. There was just so many elements threaded through and so much of that energy in kind of these symbolic points that they were making throughout the service. So many people then during the service called for the passage of a police reform act um, that is going to the Senate that's named after George Floyd. And it was really, um, they were using the right funeral. And I, I sincerely believe this was also being used with um, the approval of the right family, using this funeral as a way to galvanize people to take action and to keep doing this work because they don't want his death to be in vain. They don't want his death to be forgotten. So while it was um, remembering this 20-year-old man, it was also how um, are we going to react in light of his death and in light of the circumstances of his death? How are we going to take that and move forward for change so that this doesn't happen to another family? Well, Christian, you know, as we've all been reporting, these police shootings, they're not new. These stories aren't new. They're continuing, unfortunately. This week we had the fatal shooting of an Ohio teen. Um, But do you sense something more meaningful happening in terms of systemic change? That's a difficult question. You know, um, it depends on the instance, right? The Ohio one, um, as I was talking to an attorney yesterday, African-American woman, and she looked at that video and said she felt that it was a justified shooting. You know, here's a police officer who's rolling up on a scene, and if we see the freeze frame from that, you see that knife in hand and, and you know, the officer um, does what he does. It's difficult to look at every single situation as being exactly the same. But it also brings up, you know, how police react when you have uh, a black person behind the wheel versus when you have a white person behind the wheel. I know I've had my own uh, personal issues being a black man um, with police happening years ago and, and when I was in my 20s. Will this lead to to some sort of change? I think right now we've got a spotlight. What's changed it, of course, and we can all agree, is that we all have cameras. We carry cameras all over the place. We have body cameras. So we're actually beginning to see what was going on 20 or 30 years ago or even longer than that. Um, So hopefully by now being able to see it, being able to come to our own conclusions, that people, as we've seen, protests in the street, you know, rising up and asking and demanding for change. And I think that something will happen. It's going to be slow, um, but something there will be some change um, in terms of uh, how police interact with people and how people interact with police. That's Christian Farr, reporter for NBC5 Chicago. Also with us this week on The Recap is Kim Belware of The Washington Post. Kim, Christian, sit tight. There's plenty more stories to cover. Stories like these.
Tonight there are more than 220 pages of new salacious details in the federal corruption case against Chicago Alderman Ed Burke. After years of planning, today the city officially opened up the application process for its only casino license. For the first time in more than a year, Walter Payton College Prep students came back to the classroom. DePaul and Columbia are the first post-secondary schools in Illinois to require the vaccine. All city-run vaccination sites, including the United Center, Chicago State University and Gallagher Way next to Wrigley Field will accept walk-ins, though appointments are still preferred. As of yesterday, 51% of Illinois residents over 16 have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. And today the city is opening up all vaccination sites for walk-in appointments. Christian, what's the latest there? Well, um, you know, the, the great thing is that uh, when they started this, it was such a very, very slow process. And now that you're, you're handling 16 and, and older, at least with, I believe, with the Pfizer vaccine, we are going in the direction that I think that everybody wants to as we march into the summer and then we march into fall for the school year. We've seen businesses that have been greatly affected by this. I don't know how many business owners I've talked to who have not been able to move forward because of this uh, virus. And now with this vaccine, people are feeling a little bit more comfortable. The city seems to be executing this a little bit better than they did in the beginning. It was a little slow. We saw what happened with Loretto Hospital as well. So I think we are on the road to uh, making certain that uh, a majority of people in the city and in Cook County and in the state will be vaccinated hopefully in the next month or so. Briefly tell us about the story that you did this week. It was on um, research from Northwestern about the importance yeah. of, of getting fully vaccinated. So this was really, really interesting. There is a professor at Northwestern, Tom McDade. He decided that uh, he was going to uh, get a, a study sponsored that would test for antibodies. Well, what he was able to find out, which was very, very interesting, was that if you had a mild or asymptomatic case of the virus, you did not have enough antibodies. So I don't know how many people I've talked to who have said, oh, I had the coronavirus, I recovered from it, I had a mild case of it, I'm not going to get the vaccine. He says, if we want to get to that herd immunity, everybody's going to have to be fully vaccinated. And when you're talking about Pfizer and Moderna, that means not just getting one shot, but two. There was some research out there that said if you got one shot, you would be okay. He says no. The research he's found that if you had a severe case of it, you do have the antibodies and you might be okay with one shot. But if you have a mild or asymptomatic case, you're going to need to get both shots of the vaccine. So I just happened to get my second shot uh, this week and I had a mild case of uh, coronavirus back in September. So I would not have had enough antibodies to protect myself if I had just had one shot. So it's very important what he's saying is that people get both shots of the vaccine if we want to get to herd immunity, because by not doing that, we're not going to get to herd immunity. And this this progression of getting better is going to be much slower. Kim, the vaccine supply has finally caught up to demand, right? It seems like anybody who is interested in the Chicago area, at least, in getting uh, a vaccine has probably known somebody, maybe experienced themselves, uh, how difficult it, it was for so many people. I mean, uh, racing to get slots when they became available through the city or through the county, um, maybe driving to other parts in the state to get them. And, you know, 
people have compared this to, you know, getting, uh, getting Beyonce tickets, you know, earlier when the vaccine rollout <laughs> yeah. started. And now that it is finally starting to, you know, meet the demand, hopefully people will be more encouraged because the other thing is, you know, for a lot of the vulnerable populations who maybe don't have as easy access to transit or maybe have more restricted work hours, having more supply might make it more likely that they can get this if they haven't already, because it, it just isn't such a process to go through to, you know, get access to this. DePaul and Columbia College, they announced that they're going to require anyone attending in-person classes in the fall to be fully vaccinated. Kim, do you think that we'll see more of these mandates? I think so. I mean, and this is such an interesting time as the availability ramps up. You know, you have these younger populations that were kind of last in line as far as the priorities to, you know, to receive the shots. We've also seen how there had been clusters at college campuses, at sorority and fraternity houses. That was a big one, especially last year. And for so many college students who have been doing remote work, they're probably just really excited to get back to some some level of normalcy. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see exactly how accommodating the different schools are going to be, because as I imagine we're going to be talking about soon, for CPS high schoolers, they're going to keep some option open for remote. And um, what's really going to be a big question going forward is if there is this mandate for vaccines, what accommodations are going to exist, um, either for people who have maybe medical or religious exemptions, you know, what is going to be done about the population who is not going to be vaccinated? Are they going to be fine doing this consistent, you know, weekly testing? You know, how is that going to work in practice? Because so many of the plans that we've had in place for health and safety around the vaccine at college campuses, you know, they were they were great in theory and they didn't work as well uh, in practice. Well, this just in from my producer, Andrea, she says, Loyola just announced that they're going to uh, mandate vaccines this fall. Another sign that life is slowly getting back to normal, uh, that city council actually meeting in person this week uh, for the first time since the start of the pandemic. How'd that go, Christian? Well, that was interesting. You know, you had a majority of your city council members uh, come back. I think it was close to 30. So you had some that were were still remote. Uh, There's many who are vaccinated already, so you feel comfortable with the handshake or, or the hug. Um, and then it was just, you know, get right down to business. One of the interesting things was uh, Ray Lopez, um, Alderman Ray Lopez, who was not a fan of Mayor Lightfoot at all, one of her biggest critics. Um, actually, uh, they had a fist bump <laughs> when they went into city council. Oh. So I think, if, you know, there's a feeling of, of getting back to some normalcy there. Hopefully we'll at some point see full city council Getting back, but you know they had a lot of things on, on the plate. One of those being affordable housing. Another person who was there, who is under a big spotlight right now, is Alderman Ed Burke. He actually walked to the city council meeting, and as we know, he's going through a corruption issue right now, a federal corruption issue that started back in 2019. So um, that is all unfolding at the same time as this first in-person meeting happened. And uh, the big thing to come out of of council this week was the passage of of the mayor's affordable housing plan. So what does that look like? This is something that is the mayor has been pushing. It's a big deal. You know, as we know the makeup of this city, we've got, you know, the west side, we've got the south side uh, that don't get as much attention as uh, many people think, especially as it relates to housing. So now we've got this affordable housing plan that was uh, uh, passed uh, by the council, 42 to 8. And I think one of the biggest things here is that when it comes to builders and developers coming in to make some changes, they have to make certain that 20 percent of their units are affordable, that people can afford those. That's up from 10 percent. So I think that's a, a pretty big deal. But there were no votes on this. 
um, one of them being Alderman uh, Maria Haddon, one of the newest here in the 49th Ward, um, in terms of um, making sure that residents can afford that affordable housing. Um, so it still may be out of reach. Uh, Alderman Byron Cinco Lopez also uh, voted no uh, because he didn't see that there was enough family-sized affordable apartments um, under this plan. But, you know, again, this was largely supported. So there are aldermen out there who truly believe that this is going to be very beneficial for the city, for their residents, for their constituents. Um, so we'll just have to see how it plays out um, as this um, is, uh, starts to be enforced. Well, before we go, I've just had a few seconds here, but what are you going to be keeping your eye on in the coming week? Kim, you first. I am going to see what the ongoing pressure campaign looks like around the Adam Toledo video and kind of how that investigation goes forward. You know, this is someplace that Chicago has uh, unfortunately been several times before. And every time this happens, there are going to be calls again asking what has actually changed. You know, people might have, you know, turn their attention to what's going on with the consent decree that the city police department has been really behind on. Um, so I'm going to be interested to see, you know, if there's more energy bubbling up for, uh, change, you know, forced out of that situation. Christian? I'm waiting to see this uh, Derek Chauvin uh, sentencing. I really want to see what the response is going to be. We didn't get that same response from Jason Van Dyke because I just don't think it was enough time behind bars for most people. He's looking at a lot of time, Derek Chauvin. I want to see what's going to happen after that. That's it for the Weekly News Recap. We have been talking with Kim Belware of The Washington Post and NBC Chicago's Christian Farr. Thank you both. And that's WBEZ's weekly news recap. For the best beyond the headlines deep dives on local and state stories, make sure you're subscribed and join us each week. And on Sunday, watch your pod feed for our weekly COVID and vaccine Q&A with Dr. Mia Teramina. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. We'll meet again soon. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.